Okay, uh, <clears throat> we join with uh, Glenn. Welcome everybody out. We're happy to be here and invite you to get your Bibles open to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to begin our lesson there this morning and look at verses 7 and 8, uh, kind of be the, the springboard of uh, what our lesson's about uh, here, here today. Good to see everybody out. Uh, going to warm up. Hopefully get rid of all the snow, but then they're talking about maybe snow again later in the week. So anyway, uh, but uh, happy to be here. I invite you to follow along. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, Paul says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, uh, as you are unleavened. For Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We tie our lesson, Christ, our Passover, our Passover lamb. And that's kind of the concept we're going to be kind of developing here as we look at this text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Christ, our Passover. First off, contextually, there was a problem here at Corinth. And that is, there was sin in the camp. And that, of course, goes back to another Old Testament idea when they were defeated at uh, uh, Ai after the defeat of Jericho because there was sin in the camp. And that's the problem here because when you read the first couple of verses, it talks about there was a brother that was in fornication with his stepmother. He had his father's wife. And that was great wickedness to be involved in an incestuous form of fornication that even even the Gentiles knew that that was wrong and the brethren instead of mourning and lamenting and dealing with it they were all puffed up about it and Paul is trying to say no it's got to be dealt with this is just terribly terribly wrong and we don't go along with wrong when there's sin in the camp and so he talks about uh, purging out the leaven leaven being an evil influence that was in the congregation and he draws here from the Old Testament imagery of the Passover feast, of putting out leaven. And there's just different parallels that are kind of made between the Passover feast and what we have in Christ Jesus, of the Passover lamb, of putting out the leaven, the idea of a feast, etc. And quite often in studying the scriptures, you'll see this from Old Testament shadows and types and antitypes. Now, I've got here on the screen a picture for those out in the car. It's a black and white photo, and you see it's uh, kind of winter because there's no leaves on the trees there in the background. And uh, you got three people standing, and you're just seeing the shadow. You don't see the people, but you see the shadows, but the shadows implies that there's people there. I guess it could be like wooden silhouettes or cardboard silhouettes casting the shadow but probably not but probably three people there because you can count the shadows there's one two three i look at the shadows it looks like the one in the middle looks to be a woman uh the one over there on the uh, on the left the one on the left looks like the one making the photograph it looks like cold weather because the one on the left looks like wearing one of kind of a long coat there but you wouldn't really understand what the people exactly look like until you saw the people. You saw the, the person standing. You can see the shadows and you get some indication, some information from the shadows. And then you would look at the people themselves and, well, they would make it all clear. 
And that's what you have so often in the Old Testament. We see the shadows. And the Passover feast of the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of what was to come in the New Testament era. And that's what Paul is drawing here in uh, our reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 7, and 8. He's going back to the uh, idea of the Old Testament Passover and putting out the leaven there. And so let's go back and look just a little bit and talk about the history of the Passover and what that was all about. Let's go back to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus there, in chapter 1, you remember how Genesis, because Joseph went down and became second in command, and all his family moved down there, and they multiplied and multiplied, and they became a great people. And then there arose a pharaoh that knew not Joseph, another king, and he was looking at the Israelites and like, there's going to be a lot of these people here. And they might cause problem if there was any kind of conflict, and so it says there in chapter 1, And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. Verse 14, And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and in brick, and all manner of service in the field. And uh, all their service in which they may, uh, made them serve was with rigor. Now, if you look up that word rigor, it's an interesting term. It's ideal, literally the ideal to break. Uh, to break apart or to fracture, just like you would fracture a bone, that that would really hurt. It therefore carries the idea of severity and cruelty. As they were serving under cruel taskmasters, and it was bad, as they were kind of uh, like slaves and uh, treated like slaves, and, and uh, they served with rigor, etc., as the text describes. And it goes on to talk about Pharaoh had a plan, was like tell the midwife, well, any, any men that are born, any boys that are born, just kill them. Well, they had enough fear for God. Said, well, we can't do that. And then when Pharaoh said, well, what's all this? Happen? Well, you know, those, those Israelite women, they're pretty, pretty hardy, and they have their babies, and they're, they're up and gone before we even get there. And okay, well, if you got a baby, throw a baby boy, throw it into the river. And that, of course, leads into chapter 2, where Moses is born, and, of course, he's hid by his parents, as we learn from the scriptures. And then he was put in a little basket, and then Pharaoh's daughter, of course, uh, saw him, had compassion, took him as her own, etc. And we read about that in chapter 2. Then chapter 3, Moses rises up uh, to protect one of his brethren, and uh, that creates a problem, and he has to flee and he's gone for 40 years, the people are crying, and God hears the cry of the people, and he sends Moses. He chooses Moses to be the leader. And so we come to chapter 5, and afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith Jehovah, God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. He was going to be the leader to lead the people out of this bondage. And in verse 2 it says... <clears throat> And Pharaoh said, Who is Jehovah that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not Jehovah, neither will I let Israel go. And so Pharaoh, he just sort of stubs up in his pride and arrogance. <laughs> I don't know this Jehovah guy. Well, fear not. God sends Noah, as God sends Pharaoh, a ten lesson correspondence course of who Jehovah God is. It was the ten plagues. And that's what we read about in the following chapters is all these plagues that came until we come to the 10th plague. And that takes us over then to chapter 11 where God describes the 10th plague that was to come upon the Egyptians. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 1, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go from here. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out here altogether. And so, verse 4, thus, uh, Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits upon the throne, even to the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of the beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was none like, uh, like it, nor shall there be any like it any more. Uh, but against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against a man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And so they make that known. And then we come into chapter 12, and it gives further explanation about how the Israelites would be protected. And we're going to pick up there in verse 3. Speak unto all the children, uh, speak unto uh, all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth month, in the tenth day of this month shall you take them, every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next uh, unto his house take it according to the number of the persons. Every man according to the eating shall you count uh, for the lamb. And the lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year shall you take it out of the sheep, uh, uh, from the sheep or from the goat. So a male lamb without blemish. That will have overtones into the New Testament substance. Verse 6, And you, <coughs> and you shall, keep, uh, shall keep it upon the 14th day of the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take the blood and put it on the two side posts and upon the upper door posts of the houses in which they shall eat. And they shall eat the flesh in the night, roasted with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Uh, eat not of it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted with fire, uh, with the heads and legs and the inner parts thereof. And you shall let nothing, be, uh, nothing of it remain until the morning, that it remain, uh, uh, and that which remains in the morning uh, you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it. Uh, with your loins girded and your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So there we're introduced to the whole idea of the Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt, and I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. And the blood shall be upon you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and all the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day it shall be upon you for a memorial, and all, uh, and all you shall keep a feast to the Lord throughout your generation. You shall keep a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day shall you put away leaven out of your house. For whatsoever eats uh, unleavened bread from the first day into the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Well... Anyway, that was the basic idea of what, what's going to happen in, this, in the final plague, the tenth plague. And that is the Israelites, they would take on the doorposts and, and on, the, uh, on the lintel, they would apply the blood of, the, of this lamb. And God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So the idea of Passover, they would just pass by that house. 
And the Egyptians, they didn't have this information. And so when the angel came and struck the firstborn from Pharaoh, his firstborn, in the middle of the night, I don't know whether there was like screaming or what that would awaken people. And people began to get up and your firstborn is dead and the crying and the wailing, calling for doctors, calling for something. And then lights all over. Egypt was, uh, people were getting up in the middle of the night and firstborn, whether it was you were just a maidservant or whether you was Pharaoh or you're a general, whatever. It didn't make any difference. The plague came upon the Egyptians. And Pharaoh then said, word, okay, you Israelites, get everything and get out of here. Israelites, they're protected. Why? Because they applied the blood. And when God saw the blood, he passed over them. And just as you think again about the idea of shadow and substance, here we have the shadow for, uh, for uh, foreshadowing, typifying what was to come in Christ Jesus. And that's where it gets back to our text. That Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. You look at this whole idea of the Passover feast that Paul talks about from the Old Testament and how that corresponds into the New Testament and our feast that it's talking about and how Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And that is so critically important because our sacrificial lamb was Jesus. He was a male. He was without blemish. And he was offered upon the cross. And when the blood is applied to our lives, in the imagery, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. When coming the day of judgment, when we have the blood applied in our lives and we stand before the Lord in the day of judgment, well, our sins are covered by the blood and we'll be okay. And the people in the world who have all these sins and transgressions, God doesn't see any blood. And judgment comes upon their wrongdoing. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. And how many passages that talk about this ideal of the blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. Notice there in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, talks about the salutation that comes from God and from the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loves us and washed us from our sins with his own blood. We are washed with the blood of Christ. That our sins are taken away. They're all scrubbed away. They're all cleansed. They're all taken away by the precious blood of Christ. Notice there in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It is the blood of Christ. And the one who sacrificed himself at Calvary as the Lamb of God dying for our sins that we can find forgiveness. Look there in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. <clears throat> Jesus Christ the righteous and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. We don't throw that word around very much. But it's a biblical concept. And that propitiation is an atoning sacrifice. The atoning sacrifice that Jesus died on the cross as the Lamb of God, as the Lamb without blemish, is offered. 
and sacrificed for us, just as they sacrificed the land in the household of these Israelites. And they took the blood and they put it on the, on the side posts and upon the lintel of the doorway of their houses. And God would see the blood and he would pass by and they were not, uh, they were not uh, uh, smitten by the, the, the plague and died. God passed over. You see, it typifies what would happen in Christ Jesus, that he would be our propitiation, that he would die for us. There in John chapter 1 and verse 29, the next day John, that's talking about John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Yeah, he would be the sacrificial lamb that would be sacrificed, that would shed his blood. And through that precious blood, we could find, we could find cleansing. And when the blood is applied in our hearts and lives, when we find the blessed forgiveness based upon this great sacrifice of Jesus Christ, yeah, God will pass over. Christ, our Passover, gives us life when we deserve death. Yeah, that's what we do. We deserve death. We deserve condemnation. But when the blood is applied, when the blood falls upon us, that we are cleansed. Yeah, God passes over. That we don't have to suffer death. We find life. We find reconciliation in the Son of God. And Peter touched on it there in 1 Peter chapter 1. Since you know that you were not redeemed, redeems the idea of being bought back. We were not bought back from corrupt, uh, with corruptible things as silver and gold, uh, from your vain manner of life received by tradition of the fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb. That lamb figure again. Without blemish. Going back to the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 there. A lamb that is without blemish and without spot. You, know, you look at in Mal, I think it's Malachi. They were bringing these sick animals and trying to offer them to Joah. I didn't want a bunch of sick animals. He wanted, he, wanted, he, wanted, he wanted animals that were without blemish. They were not sick. He wanted a spotless animal to be brought. And they, well, they're going to, the animal's going to die anyway. Why don't we just take the sick one? He's going to die pretty soon. We'll just go and offer that as a sacrifice and, and think that'll be okay. No, it wasn't okay. God demanded a lamb without blemish. Jesus would be that lamb without, without blemish <coughs> Excuse me, and spun. Verse 20. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So again, you, you see the idea of the shadow, like we used the illustration of the shadow. You see those shadows and you see the three persons there. Well, you know that there's three people that are standing there. You don't know exactly what they look like, but you see the three, there's three, purpose, three people. It wasn't a person and a horse. You didn't see the shadow of a horse. You saw the shadow of three persons. And you go back to so many things in the Old Testament. They, they, they were foreshadowing the substance, the body that was to come. And then we come to the New Testament and we see it all explained. And then you understand the shadow because we see uh, the fulfillment in Christ Jesus there. Now this blood, when does this blood get applied? Well, for the alien, we learn from Acts chapter 22, the example of Paul, who had become a believer in Jesus, who had repented, who had confessed faith in the Lord, and yet the blood had not been applied because Ananias told him in Acts 22 and verse 16, And now why do you tarry? 
Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You see, when is the blood applied? Well, when we are baptized into Christ. That's for the alien sin. Somebody that's never become a Christian, the step that brings us into contact with the blood is baptism. Sometimes people say, well, uh, you know, the blood, that's what washes away our sin. My answer to that, yes, amen. The blood of Christ is what washes away our sins. Revelation 1 and verse 5, where John says, Unto him that loved us and washed, our, washed, us, uh, washed us from our sins and his own blood. That's what washes away sins. But the question is, when does that blood that washes away sin, when does that apply? You come back to Acts 22 and verse 16. And you got the example of Paul, who was a persecutor, who had become a believer, who had repented, who had confessed faith in Christ. What is he told to get the contact with the blood, to get the benefits of the blood, get that blood applied to his life? Arise and be baptized uh, in the name of Jesus Christ and wash away your sins. Call on the name of the Lord. That's when. That's when. An alien sinner gets in contact. <clears throat> gets the blood applied to their life when they obey the gospel. Now, for the erring child of God, when we fall back into sin, when do our sins? When, when do we get in contact? We know what washes away our sin. It's the blood of Christ. But when does that happen for the erring child of God? 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Christ, his uh, blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what do we learn? Well, what do we learn? If we're an alien, we need to be baptized into Christ as a penitent believer who has confessed faith. As an erring Christian, what do we do? Well, we're to confess our sins. We're to acknowledge our sins and bring them before the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. And that's when the blood of Christ is applied. And when the blood of Christ is applied, then come the day of judgment, when I see the blood, I will pass. I will pass over you. That's, that's the whole point. The precious blood of Christ forgives us of our sins that God might pass over us come the day of judgment. Now, Going back to our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about Christ our Passover sacrifice for us. Therefore, verse 8, therefore, therefore, kind of draw a conclusion. In view of the fact that Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Therefore let us keep the feast. There's practical applications that Paul is making here. What is this feast? Well, some say, well, is that talking about the Lord's Supper? Well, the Lord's Supper would be included in this feast. But if you go back to the shadow, remember the shadow of the Passover? It was something that lasted for seven days. That is every day of the week. What's the point? The point I see is that Christianity, Christian, Christianity is something that we do. It's a Sunday, Sunday thing. Is that what being a Christian is? It's something that we do every Sunday. That we fulfill our Christian duties on Sunday and then that's it? Is that what being a Christian is? Something that we just do on Sunday? And then all the other days we kind of have to ourselves and do our own thing? No. If you're looking at the shadow, the Passover feast was for seven days. That feast that was described there in the book of Exodus chapter 1, it was seven days. Seven days without the leaven. 
They were to celebrate this for seven days without leaven. That is for the whole week. Emblematic that Christianity is something that we do seven days a week. It's not just a Sunday thing. If we think that Christianity and being a servant of God is just something that we do on Sundays, it includes what we do on Sundays, but if that's what we think, that we're just a Sunday-only Christian, no. We miss, we, we're, we're missing the point about this feast, this festival of, of, of serving the Lord. Because serving the Lord is something that applies every day of the week. It applies on Sunday, it applies on Monday, it applies on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Every day of the week. If we look at the language there of, uh, of Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross on Sundays and follow me. Is that, is that what it said? Take up your cross on Sundays? That's not, that's, it didn't say take up the cross on Sundays. He says take up the cross daily. Just like the Passover feast was seven days because how many, how many days in a week? Seven. Our feast, our spiritual feast, our fest, uh, uh, festive uh, celebration of, of being a child of God is something we do every day of the week. That's the point. It's an every day, every day that we serve the Lord. Not just Sunday. Do we serve the Lord on Sunday? Yeah, we serve the Lord on Sunday, but we serve the Lord on Mondays and Tuesdays, etc. Take up your cross daily. Or if you would look at Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures on Sundays. Well, these things were so. No. They searched the scriptures daily. What's the point? It gets back to Christianity. It's a daily thing. It's seven days a week. The Passover feast was for seven days. Every day was included. The week has seven days. So the totality of the week that we are Christian seven days a week. 24-7. 24-7. You ever seen that phrase? 24-7? There's a store. We're open 24-7. What's the point? 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What's it mean to be a Christian? 24-7. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're to follow Jesus. We're to take up our cross. We're to live this festive life. We're to put away this leaven. That is talked about in this text here in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so looking at the shadow that they kept the feast, they were not to eat leaven for seven days to be put it out from their house. Even so, Paul says that we're to keep this feast not with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Leaven is the, uh, as Paul talks about, physically in the Passover, that is yeast, not to have bread uh, made with yeast. They don't have any yeast bread. You know, all that big, uh, fluffy, bubbly, uh, sweet-tasting bread with, with yeast in it. No. They're going to get rid of all the leaven for the whole week. Well, Paul says in Christianity, we get rid of the leaven. Well, what leaven is he talking about? He's talking about yeast? No. He's talking about the leaven of malice and wickedness. Get rid of that. Look at what Paul said there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 20 and 21. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that you should be found uh, unto you such as you desire not, lest there be debates, envyings, wrath, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, conceit, torments, the spiritual malice, malicious attitudes that he talks about listed here, that kind of leaven needs to be put away. 
We don't need to have a heart that's got, that's got uh, this argumentative spirit, full of wrath, that we have envy, we're troublemakers, we backbite, we whisper, we're arrogant, we, we cause disturbances, blah, 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 and talking about, that's the ways of the devil. And not only to talk about these, these spiritual bad attitudes, but he goes on to say in verse 21, And lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, that I shall mourn over you, over many who have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and licentiousness which they have committed. So spiritual wickedness and moral wickedness, get rid of it. It's 11. Paul said this feast, that is the serving God, 24-7. Being a Christian, 24-7. Not with the leaven of malice and wickedness. We're going to put that aside. We're not to be dabbling in that. And then, as you go back to our text once again, <clears throat> that talks about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You remember Jesus told the story about, uh, about the, the man that was demon-possessed, or the demon that lived in this house. And the guy cleaned it up, cast out the demon, it, got it all clean and swept, but it said empty. And so what happened? Well, then the devil came back with other demons and came back and re-inhabited that place. What's the point? When we get shed of the, uh, of the mean and the malicious and the bad stuff, we're to put into our lives, put on the good things. Well, you got passages like, Colossians chapter 3, where it says put off, and it talks about all these things that we're to put off. Get, get them out of your life. They're, they're, they're corrupting, they're, they're evil, uh, they're wickedness, and they're just get rid of all that. But Paul doesn't stop there. We, we need to get rid of those bad things. But then he says put on these good things into your life, into your heart, into your, into your life. And as he says here, that we should have the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 18. Pray for us that we, uh, for we trust, uh, we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. Honestly is live with integrity. You know, what you see, what you get. That is, we, 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 we try to be what we ought to be. That means Christians are perfect? No. But it means that we're trying to be sincere and genuine in serving the Lord. Remember in the parable of the sower, there in Luke 8 and verse 15, when it talks about the good ground, Jesus explained what the good ground was all about, but uh, the seed that fell on the good ground are they who in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Get rid of the bad stuff. Don't, don't keep this feast of serving God 24-7 with this old leaven of malice and wickedness. Contextually, that's what was happening. Here was a brother that was in sin. He, he was in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother, and they were just sort of tolerating that. No, deal with that. It appears when you look at 2 Corinthians that this brother did come to repentance, but it needed to be dealt with. Get rid of this old leaven, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and put a new lump, be uh, without leaven. The, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And that ill truth is, well, first, uh, 3 John, 
Third John there, verses 3 and 4. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. Even as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. So this unleavened bread of sincerity and truth is that we're just trying to be genuine. We're trying to be honest. We're trying to live with an integrity. And we're just simply trying to follow God's truth. It's all about God's truth. And Jesus sacrificed himself as the Lamb of God. He sacrificed it all. And when we understand and, and, and appreciate and concentrate and focus on the sacrificial Lamb, Christ, our Passover, it motivates us to say, well, you know, I need to respond to that kind of love. I need to respond to that kind of uh, sacrifice. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4, verse 19. And so Paul draws from the Old Testament Passover feast and draws into what we have in Christ Jesus, that is, this new feast. That is, that we uh, live seven days a week, 24-7, serving the Lord. Because Jesus, our Passover lamb, sacrificed himself. By his grace and by his mercy, he did that in order that we might be forgiven, that we might be cleansed from our sins. Well, we extend the invitation with this question. Will God pass over your sins? Will God pass over your sins? You, you think about the Passover, you know, when, when the, the Israelites applied the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel, God passed over. Has the blood of Christ been applied to your life? In order to get the blood of Christ applied to our life, we hear this good news about Jesus. We believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are to repent and turn to God because God commands all men everywhere to repent. We confess Jesus as Lord, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And then we're baptized, just as we saw there in Acts chapter 22, the example of Paul. That's when we get the blood. What takes away our sins? The blood of Christ. When does that blood get applied? Well, when we obey these steps and are baptized into Christ as a penitent believer, that's when the blood will be applied. We come to rise to walk in newness of life. 24-7, serving the Lord, trying to grow in God's grace and knowledge. Be faithful unto that. But sometimes we fall down. And there we got the second law of pardon. That is, we repent and pray God for forgiveness. If the blood of Christ has not been yet applied in your life, yeah, you can have the blood applied to your life. And God will pass over. But you have to do something about it. And if you want to accept this precious blood of Christ into your life, and we can help you to obey the gospel, let us know. While together as we stand and as we sing.